0: A journey through the Psalms. We've made it to the 15th Psalm. We're just taking them one at a time. And before I read it, notice this summary of the Psalms that is in your notes. We look at this every week. It comes from Dr. Kendall Easley. He's a professor I had at Mid-America, and he wrote a book where he gave little summaries of every book of the Bible, all 66. And they are tremendously helpful. And I love this summary of the book of Psalms. What is the book of Psalms about? Well, here it is. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. So uh, the Psalms deal with a variety of circumstances, mountaintops and valleys. And the point is, whether you're on a mountaintop or you're walking through a valley, God is worthy of praise and God is worthy of your trust. You can trust him no matter what you are facing in life. That's what the Psalms are about. They're very emotional, very real, very raw, and so uh, so reverent. They're raw, yet they're reverent. Because you see in these chapters the different writers, David and, and others, just clinging to God in the midst of all that's going on in their life. So they're so good to read and study and refreshing. And we've made it to Psalm 15. And Psalm 15 is about deeper fellowship with God. So if you're here tonight and you say, I want to have deeper fellowship with God, then you've come to the right place. Psalm 15 is going to guide us into deeper fellowship with God. Let me share with you a, a quote that I've been chewing on the past couple of weeks. It comes from Adrian Rogers. I was listening to a sermon, a sermon of his uh, not too long ago. And he made a statement in it that's really just stuck with me. And it's really challenging. Here's what he said. He said that you have as much of God as you want. Think about that. You have as much of God as you want. So if you feel like you don't have a very close, um, intimate fellowship with God, um, that's on you. It's not on God because God desires that, right? He desires that closeness. He desires for you to draw near to him. And if you want more of God, he's there. As you seek his face, as you draw near to him. I read in Psalm 119 this morning in my quiet time about seeking the Lord with a whole heart. And that just really jumped out. Seeking the Lord with a whole heart. Not a divided heart, but a whole heart seeking after God because I want more of him. That's what Psalm 15 is about. David is writing because he wants more of God. He wants to be closer to God. So keeping that in mind, look there with me. Psalm 15, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Interesting questions to ask. Here's the answer, verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is what? Right. And speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor? nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things, this is interesting, shall never be moved. Wonderful, wonderful Psalm. Five verses, and we're going to dig in. You can really divide this Psalm into three parts. Let's look at the first part. First, the first part is a question. That's in your notes. It's a blank there. A question. He begins the psalm with a question. Here's the question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now what does he mean when he's talking about a tent and a holy hill? The tent and the holy hill refer to the places where God's glory dwelt among his People, when God desired to manifest his presence among his chosen people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, he gave Moses in Exodus some very specific instructions to build a tabernacle or a tent it 's called a tent of meeting in in, in some places and this tabernacle was built to the specifications that God gave Moses and God provided some craftsmen to build this tabernacle. And the tabernacle was basically a, a covered structure that was meant to be folded up and carried along with the travels of the Israelite people. And the inside of the tent was divided up into two rooms there was a holy place where there were some furnishings. There was a, a lampstand. There was a table of showbread. There was an altar of incense. Those all have specific meanings. And then there was a, at the back of that room, there was this veil, this, this curtain that covered uh, and separated that room from the next. And when you walked behind that curtain, you walked into what the Bible calls the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, according to God's instructions, only one person... Uh, among the Israelites could go into the Holy of Holies once a year and that person was the high priest. He would go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people of Israel. He would take uh, the blood of slain animals with him and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to signify that the people were guilty and innocent blood had to be shed to cover the sins of the guilty which all pictured the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross, innocent blood shed to cover the sins of the guilty. Look how I'm pointing out right here. To cover the sins of the guilty like Wade Humphreys. And and this, this entire sacrificial system, uh, the, the, the tabernacle, the furnishings, it all pointed to the fulfillment that Christ would bring when he died on the cross. So when he mentions here the tent, he's, he's, he's mentioning the place where God uh, dwelt among his people. But there was a time when the, when the, the tent uh, was going to become a more permanent structure. And you remember, David wanted to build a permanent structure. You remember that story? Uh, in 2 Samuel, David wanted to build God a permanent house to house the Ark of the Covenant and the other furnishings where the holy place, the Holy of Holies, would be. And God said, no, David, you're not the one to build it. You've got too much blood on your hands. I'm going to let your son Solomon build it. So David knew that one day the tent... Would become permanent and be situated on a hill, right? What hill? Well, that's an entirely different sermon. Mount Moriah, where Abraham took Isaac. You've been there. Uh, um, the the plate, the, the Aruna's uh, threshing floor. We could talk a lot about that. But the the Temple Mount is what it's called now. Is that that hill that he's talking about here? Where the you've been there, myself. The Temple Mount is it would be the place where the The permanent structure that housed the furnishings would be would be, and we know that when Moses put together the tabernacle and the different furnishings and all that came together that God showed his glory. He manifested his glory, the Shekinah glory cloud came down on that over that tent and on the actual ark of the covenant, and the people saw the glory of God dwelling in their midst. And when Solomon made the permanent structure, David put together all the things for him, but he put it all together. And when the, the temple was built, Solomon's temple, the permanent structure, again, I think it's 1 Kings 8, the glory of God falls, and God manifests his glory among his people. So I said all that to say this. When David mentions here the tent and the holy hill, he's talking about the structure where the Ark of the Covenant would be housed, where God's glory dwelt. Everybody got that? He's he's talking about the presence of God. Now, think this in your notes. Look at the next blank. They represent, the tent of the Holy Hill, represent his presence. Now, remember I told you only one person, the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies how many times a year? Once a year on the Day of Atonement, or called Yom Kippur. Uh, and David knew that. David knew he had no business going into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. He knew that if he went back there, he would be struck dead. So David knew he didn't have access into the Holy of Holies, but he still desired God's presence. All right, He knew he would not go to before the Ark of the Covenant, but he still wanted to be close to God. He desired, if you look in your notes, he desired to be close to God. So what he's saying here is this. Lord, even though I can't go to the Holy of Holies, I want to be near you. I want to be in your presence. I want more of you. I want to be closer to you. I want deeper fellowship with you. James Montgomery Boyce says it like this. He said this question is basically, how must we live to enjoy the fullness of fellowship with God? That's what David means here. What kind of person can enjoy Fullness of fellowship. What kind of person can draw near and enjoy your presence? What kind of person does it take to to be close to you, God? That is the question that's being posed in verse 1. I like this this quote from Warren Wearsby. He writes, It's important to note that Psalm 15 is not a prescription for being saved, but a description of how saved people ought to live if they want to please God and fellowship with Him. That's what this entire psalm is about. Who can be close to you, God? Who can draw near to you? Who can abide on your holy hill? Who can be close to your presence? Who, 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 who grows in fellowship with you? And the rest of the psalm is the answer to that question. So, it's not a, this is not a, a checklist for being right with God. You're not saved by works. You're saved by faith in what gr- God has already done for you. Amen? You're saved by faith in the finished work of Christ. This is a prescription, or I'm sorry, a description of how saved people ought to live. David asked this question because he loved the house of the Lord and desired in his heart to know God better and fellowship with him in a deeper way. So that's what David means by this first question. How can I be closer to you? All right, I can't go to the Holy of Holies where the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant is, the tent and the hill. I can't, I can't go there, but I want to be close to you, God. I want to be closer to you. I want that fellowship with you. That's what this question is all about. And then David answers his own question. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gives the answer. What kind of person grows closer to God? What kind of person enjoys the fullness of fellowship with God? Well, in this psalm, David lists some representative characteristics of those who enjoy closeness to God. So these these things we're going to walk through help us understand what our lives need to look like, not to be saved, but to enjoy our unbreakable relationship with God that we have because of his grace? What does our life need to look like to enjoy closeness with God? Because you know that even though you have a relationship with God that is unbreakable, if you live uh, in, in, in sin or you're not seeking God, you won't be close in that relationship. You won't have the fellowship that is possible for you to have. And so what kind of lives do we need to live? What do our lives need to look like if we're going to enjoy... Closeness to God? Good question, right? Well, David answers that question. And and you can divide it into three categories. The first category is character, lives of character. Notice what it says in verse 2 Who can sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Who can be close to you, God? Who can enjoy fullness of fellowship with you? He who walks blamelessly. He who walks blamelessly. Blameless here refers to one whose character is morally well-rounded. Now listen to me, blameless does not mean perfect. Noah's called blameless, Job's called blameless, but the the the, the phrase blameless applied to a person does not mean perfect because there are no perfect people in the Bible. The only one who lived uh, on this earth uh, as a human who was perfect was Jesus Christ, fully man. Fully God, and, and none of us are perfect. So the word "blameless" does not mean perfect, but it does mean there is a there is a well roundedness in your life where the the general tenor of your life is toward God. It means, hey, when you blow it, you say you blew it, right, and you seek to get right. And, and, and you seek to grow and you seek to change and you seek to honor God. That's what blameless means. It means that you are seeking to honor God with your life. You are morally well-rounded. It means that you don't give people a lot of, a lot of ammunition to shoot at you. It means that if people are examining your life, they can't find a lot of fault. If they do find fault, they see you say, admitting it and moving on, right? Getting right with God moving on. Uh, they can't find fault. You're living a blameless life, a well-rounded, morally well-rounded life before a watching world. And so he's speaking here, of course, of character. And then look what he says in verse four. He says, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now, what does this mean? It means that he knows, the, the, the godly person knows, he knows Who to admire and who to avoid. That's what he says right there. Notice, look back at verse 4. This person who draws close to God, in his eyes, a vile person, that word vile is literally the Hebrew word rejected, rejected by God because they turned their back to God. In his eyes, a vile person is despised. They don't want to let vile people, evil people, have undue influence in their life. They're not going to run with the ungodly. They're not going to run with the sinners and let them influence them. But look at this flip side of that. He honors those who fear the Lord. The, the godly person knows who deserves honor and who deserves distance. Who to um, who to admire those that fear the Lord and who to avoid. Now let me tell you a concern I have when it comes to this, this verse and this idea about character. It is getting, I believe, harder and harder for our kids to find Godly heroes. Folks that, I mean, fear the Lord. And in different different spheres of life, it's getting harder and harder to find heroes. And so we've got to be, as parents, as grandparents, we've got to be intentional about helping our kids uh, find some good heroes. I mean, f- folks that are worthy of emulation. Folks that are the real deal. Folks that fear the Lord. Folks that... Uh, their, 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 their walk matches their talk. I mean, we need to, we need to help our kids find the right heroes. Uh, because if we don't, they'll latch on to, to people that are culture values. And can I tell you this? Those folks that are culture values aren't necessarily worthy of emulation, are they? There's a lot of folks that are culture values... That do not fear the Lord, right? Because our culture values all the wrong things. You know, power and prestige and looks and, and intelligence and, and and wealth and material possessions and sexuality and sensuality. And these are things that our culture lifts up as things that we ought to be enamored by. We've got to help our kids to live out this verse a vile person's despised. they don't want anything to do with that person that, that that is rejected by god and and the 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 one that fears the Lord is honored in their eyes they 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 uh, appreciate someone that fears the Lord and has a real genuine walk with god we've got to help our kids find good genuine godly heroes all right so just think about that i don't know what that means for you and for me, but I know we've got to do that i uh, we, we try to be intentional about Introduce our kids to maybe some heroes from the past uh, that are worthy of emulation uh, in different spheres of life. Uh, but we've got to be intentional about helping them find some heroes in the present as well. And so uh, the answer here is this. What kind of person enjoys closeness with God? A person of character. person of character. That, that, that's, that's the kind of person that enjoys intimacy with God. Here's the second characteristic or second category of characteristics of those that enjoy closeness with God. Oh, and by the way, this psalm is not exhaustive. There are more characteristics. These are just kind of a representative group of, of, of characteristics. But the second category is conduct. Conduct. Notice what it says in verse 2. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. So he's a person of character, right? And he's a person that does the right thing. A person of right Conduct. So if you look in your notes, he does what is right. Secondly, under the heading of conduct, he does no harm to neighbors or friends. Look in verse 3. It says he he does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, and takes up uh, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So the godly person, the person of character will live out the right conduct in that They'll be good to their neighbors. They'll be good to their friends. They treat other people right. They treat other people right. One of the the markers, listen to me, of godliness is how you treat folks. Amen? Don't don't tell me how much you love Jesus if uh, you're rude to your waitress. Amen? Don't tell me how much you love Jesus If you lose your voice screaming at the umpire, because they called your kid out, right? I mean, one of the markers of of, of godliness, of character is conduct, is how you treat people. That's what he's saying here. They're good neighbors, they're good friends, they treat other people right. He does no harm to neighbors or friends. Here's the third area of conduct. He does not use or get money wrongly. Look in verse 5. Says he does not put his money at interest. He's talking about a a, a practice in these times and the times that David wrote these letters, ancient times, and a practice today of predatory lending, where where people would would lend money and charge exorbitant. Um, interest rates or, or, or fees or interest to take advantage of those who are in poverty or who had nowhere to turn. And they would use this system of predatory lending to oppress uh, people. And that's what we're talking about here. People of character, people who are godly, people who draw near to God, uh, they, don't, they don't use money wrongly. They don't, they don't lend out money to, so that that person will owe them a favor or they can get something from that person or keep them down or oppress them. That's not what a godly person does. A godly person is, is a is a, generous, a generous person. Uh, I'll tell you this story uh, real quick. I wasn't going to tell you, but I think I'll go ahead and tell you because it's a, it's a pretty cool story um, about, about generosity. Um, after uh, the service at First Woodstock... Uh, Sunday, we walked up to the front and we got to meet Johnny Hunt, and I was introduced to my wife and and uh, my kids, and we were all sitting there talking. He was very gracious, took his time to talk to us. We talked about the church here in Hernando, and he asked a lot of questions about that. and And um, he recently spent some time in Mississippi, so we talked about that a little bit. And he said, "Who's the Who's the oldest? Who's the oldest of your kids?" And we said, "Well, Cameron is." He said, "Come here, Cameron." He shook his hand. He said, "Cameron, I want you to." Take your parents to lunch. I want you to buy. And we all kind of laughed because we all know Cameron didn't have any money. Right? I mean, no money. All right? He's in debt to me. But anyway. And uh, so we kind of laughed. And, uh, and before I knew what was happening, he reached in his pocket and put a bill in Cameron's hand and said, I want you to take your family to lunch. We walked out of the church, and it was a $100 bill. I mean, talking about generous Generous and, and 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 it's like wow. And so you look at somebody like that and, and you're like man they are they want to bless using their resources to bless. And it was a blessing. I mean, you know, a hundred dollars is a hundred dollars, a lot of money and, and I don't think Cameron ever had a hundred dollar bill in his hand and he was just whoa uh, um uh but but I tell you, it left oppression depression on my kids. It really did. It's just a generosity. It really did. And so uh, a, a, a godly person does not use their money to harm others, to oppress others, to take advantage of others, to manipulate others. A godly person uses their money in a godly way. Amen? And and and, and, and that's what he's saying here. And a godly person does not get money wrongly. Doesn't use it wrongly, doesn't get it wrongly. Look what he says in verse 5. It says, he does not put out his money at interest, And does not take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, a godly person can't be convinced by money to falsely testify against someone who's innocent right? M- money has no hold on them. They, they, they can't be manipulated by money. That's what he's saying here. So they don't, they don't seek to get money in a wrong way. They're not, they're not driven by money. They're driven by principle, and that's a, a big deal. And so he's speaking here of conduct. So the first two characteristics of those who draw near to God are those of character, those of right conduct. The third category is conversation. Conversation. Two things here. Number one, the godly person does not use his tongue for slander. Look in verse 3. It says, he does not, who does not slander with his tongue. Isn't that interesting? A godly person does not use their tongue for slander. I don't know why this little muscle in our mouths is so hard to tame. Do you? James 3 tells us it's hard to tame, right? Right? Tells us it can be deadly like a, a poison or a forest fire. I don't know why this tongue of ours can cause so much harm and so much damage, but it does. It does. And we've got to be on guard. And a godly person does not use his tongue to slander others, to run down others, to tear down others. They're, as Ephesians 4.29 says, their speech is meant to encourage it's meant to edify, meant to build up, to give grace and do season. That's what speech should be about. That's what our tongues should be about. But if we're not careful, uh, we'll let our tongues get the best of us. And and, and we can find ourselves tearing down others, slandering others, and, and really letting our tongue do a lot of damage. And the godly person doesn't do that. In other words, listen to me. If you've got tongue issues, if you are a person that that tears down with your tongue, then I, I can I can almost guarantee you, you're not walking close with God. That, that, that little organ in your mouth, it can, it can keep you from intimacy with God and keep you from fellowship with God. We've got to watch our tongues. Uh, he does not use his tongue for slander. But secondly, as we think about conversation, his word is his bond. Boy, how our culture needs this today, amen? Look what it says in verse four. It says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, the godly person makes a promise, makes an agreement, makes a statement, and sticks by it even if it causes him harm. The godly person's word is their bond. And how we need that today, right? When you look at just the the contracts you have to fill out for simple things and the things you've got to sign and dot and tease across and 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 the broken agreements out there and the broken trust out there and the the rapidity with which people who are in public positions just say things that are just untrue and, and lies and they know it and you know it but they'll just it just comes right out of their mouth. It's just so easy. Uh, there's so much lying in our culture today. And, and, and the godly person, his word is his bond. In other words, if you are living in deceit, don't expect to be close to God. That deceit will keep you distant from God. It will keep you from enjoying closeness and intimacy with him. His word is his bond. I love this quote from Warren Wiersbe. He writes, truth is the cement that holds society together. Read that again. Truth is the cement that holds society together. If people get away with lies, then every promise, agreement, oath, pledge, and contract is immediately destroyed, i.e. our country today. (laughs) Why are are we coming apart the seams? Because people can't tell the truth and stand for the truth and keep their word, right? It's not happening at, at various levels. So Conversation is so important, what comes out of our mouths, and so this is not a, a an exhaustive list of characteristics of the godly, but the categories I think are pretty exhaustive: conduct, character, conversation, almost everything falls under those three categories right and and if we are going to draw close to God, what kind of person dwells on the holy hill? What kind of person enjoys uh, intimacy in the presence of God, the person of godly. Co- uh, co- character, godly conduct, godly conversation. That's the answer to his question. But let me give you a third thing and we'll be through. The third part of this psalm is simply a promise. He closes with this wonderful promise from God. He who does these things, what things? Lives with godly character. Uh, performs godly acts of conduct. Speaks godly words godly conversation he who does these things shall never be moved do you want stability in your life do you want security in your life by the way that's the the blank stability the godly are promised stability and security that's what he's saying here. Doesn't mean that we don't go through hard times. Doesn't mean there aren't times where, where, there there aren't times where we're 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 not shaken. I mean, there are times when we go through difficulty where, where our lives are shaken. But if you are a godly person, God has promised you that He will sustain you. He will keep you stable. He will keep you secure through the storms of life. And really, a great uh, reminder of this or uh, addendum to this is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn to Matthew chapter seven. Matthew chapter 7, you could say that the Sermon on the Mount, this wonderful sermon by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, is really um, an expansion of Psalm 15. He kind of expands on what David says in Psalm 15. It really kind of fills in some of the the thoughts that David had. And, And look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Here's how he closes his sermon. I love this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, talking about the sermon he just preached, what he, he deals with all kinds of things. What kind of things does Jesus deal with in the Sermon on the Mount? Somebody tell me, what's he deal with in the Sermon on the Mount? Some, what are some, some actions, attitudes, behaviors he deals with in the Sermon on the Mount? Okay, false prophets. What else? Humility. Yep. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The Beatitudes. What's that? Judging others, yep, yep. What else? Prayer, giving, fasting, marriage, anger in your heart, um, being a light, letting your light shine, being salt, being a peacemaker, being pure in heart. I mean, there's all kinds. I mean, you read, I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is rich. I love it. I preached through it years ago here at The Point, and it was just wonderful uh, to study that. Uh, but here's what he says. Every then, everyone then who hears these words of mine, who hears this sermon... Who hears my teaching and does them. So listen to me. Jesus is not just looking for hearers. He's looking for hearers and what? Doers. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And here's the metaphor. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now notice that embracing the teachings of Christ doesn't mean there won't be wind and waves and storms, right? Both, both pictures here, they, they encounter the storms and the winds, right? But, One is stable and secure, their house is not blown away. The other is not stable and secure. The one who is stable and secure is the one who builds his house on the teachings of Christ, who builds his house on the Word of God, who builds his house on truth. And so that's what David's saying in Psalm 15. This kind of person, a person of godly conduct and character and conversation, lives a stable life because God will uphold them. And they will experience a real intimacy, a real closeness, a real growing fellowship with God. So, you have as much of God as you want. Right? You have as much of God as you want. And if you want more of God, if you want to dwell in His presence and enjoy His presence, like David's saying here, the tent and the holy hill, here's how you do it. You let God change you into a person of godlier character, godlier conduct godlier conversations that happens you will experience an intimacy with him let me say it like this and i read this more my quiet time there's a direct correlation between intimacy and obedience if you want to be close to god you've got to be obedient let me show you turn to psalm 119 i'm gonna close with this i promise but turn to psalm 119 It's a long chapter, chapter one. I mean chapter Psalm 19, verse 1. Look in verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies. That's obedience. Who seek him with their whole heart. See that? There's a direct connection between keeping his testimonies and seeking him with the whole heart. In other words, if you want to seek him with the whole heart, you've got to do what he says. You've got to be obedient. That's what David's saying in Psalm 15. If you want to grow closer to God, you've got to do what he says. Grow in godliness in your life. Deeper fellowship with God. So that's what David had to say from this wonderful 15th Psalm.